Welcome everybody to Learn With All. Today we're joined with Bree Duffy. She is the New Harvest Director of Responsible Research and Innovation in the U.S. and directs the New Harvest Fellowship Program. The last person we had on who had that title was Kate Kruger, so this should be fun to hear yes. about Bree and her life. But Bree, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, I sometimes describe that I am uh, one third of the new Kate. Uh, so it's a, it's a fun yeah. job. She started she started the program really really well. Do you want to grow into a full Kate, like get those the next two thirds? Well, you know, she plan? did so much. I don't know how she did it. But there's now three of us directors, uh, just because our work has grown so much. So, okay, so you need th- you need three now to fill one Kate. Yeah, it's incredible. I don't know how she did it herself. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if you're like you know you leave three cells alone. If like the objective is to slowly uh, eat the other two and become the, like the Omni Kate. <laughs> That's one way to look at it. Yeah. But anyway, so uh, on your Twitter, uh, there, around the time that there was an announcement for uh, the new cultured cell-based chicken when it was coming out, uh, you wrote that the headlines where people were, were writing about them were quite cringeworthy. And as someone who's a scientist uh, who's in this space, I'm always curious what cringeworthy means in terms of your perspective, who has that wealth of knowledge. And then we can go into there from there. But what was what, what were some of the headlines that you thought were misleading? Ooh, starting off strong. I love it. Um, so, I mean, I'll start by saying it is definitely exciting news. Um, and I do remember at the time when I posted that on Twitter was when the FDA had given mm-hmm. their letter of no further questions, um, had not gone to the USDA yet. And so my frustrations that led to that tweet, um, really revolved around the number. I mean, it was, it was probably like 90 to 95% of headlines coming out were, cultured meat gets regulatory approval and cultured meat is going to be on your doorstep tomorrow. Like those kinds of things that didn't get at the nuance of the regulatory process, which again, I don't think everyone needs to understand the nuance, but in truth, it was not regulatory approved yet. Um, It still had many more steps it needed to do. I mean, simply needing to go to the USDA because the way these products are regulated is a two-step process between the two agencies. And so uh, that, that tweet came from my frustrations at the number of headlines that were just saying it had the green light. It was approved already when that really wasn't true. Hmm. Are there so for every other company, are they going to have to go through a similar regulatory or are they uh, spearheading anything in what they're doing? I mean, certainly those first couple of companies are, are spearheading. Um, but yes, every other company is going to have to go through the same process. Um the regulatory process in the U.S. for these products, at least at this moment, is really interesting in that it is it is completely joint. That's not like just a first time thing. That is how it's going to be. Um, that was agreed upon between the two agencies back in 2019, I believe. Um, and that's really because of the way the U.S. regulates similar products now. Like the FDA is the one that regulates pharmaceutical development, which looks a lot like early stages of these products. I mean, it's cell culture, it's laboratory practices. Um, All of that really falls under the FDA's jurisdiction. But food, animal products, and processing of meat all happens in the USDA. So they've agreed to kind of have this handoff in regulatory approval where the FDA looks at those early stages that they're experts in regulating, and then hand it off to the USDA that regulates the later stages that they're experts in. Um, Interestingly, I think we're the only country doing that right now. Um, I haven't really looked into it enough to understand why that is, but I understand why it exists in the U.S. at least. Um, And something really interesting, like to get to your point where you asked, are they spearheading it? The process right now, because these products are kind of unprecedented, like, yes, there are a lot of pieces you can pull from previous technologies when looking at the regulations, but 
a product just like this doesn't exist before this. And so regulatory agencies don't have standards yet around how to regulate them. There's no clear checklist of here are the things you need to test, here are the things you need to show, and you'll get regulatory approval. It's all kind of ad hoc right now. Companies show the data that they think proves their product is safe. Regulators look at that, decide if they agree, maybe ask for some revisions, ask for additional tests. It's all very ad hoc, very flexible, which is good because regulators recognize if they made it more rigid, it would probably hamper innovation, but it's also a lot of work. We've spent the last year talking to a lot of regulators around the world about this process. And that was one of the big outcomes is we need standardization. We need some better processes and uh, solidify the testing methods to use, but we're just not there yet. Was the have we used that process of the FDA USDA handoff for any other uh uh thing that has come out like this? I'm thinking of like genetic engineering or CRISPR when they've had new foods coming out. I I don't remember anything like it, but you know I, I don't know. That's a great question. I don't know of any, but I'm gonna have to look into that. As yeah. far as I'm aware, this is the first, but you know that's probably probably not true. I'm definitely after this, gonna look into that. Yeah. And then what would be a better standard for companies in the U.S. that you see? Like, so if, if right now it's quite cumbersome for new people to get in the, the scene and then build something that's safe up to code and then bring it out to market, what would be a, a, the, the new standard that you think people should be using? Well, like the FDA, USDA. Well, it's not so much as one individual new standard. I think mm. we need to slowly work towards standards in kind of all aspects of the technology. Um, but I think what we need to get there is more collaboration and sharing amongst the industry, because right now every company is internally in secret having to try to figure out what safety data do they need to show to prove that their products are safe and talking to regulators about that individually. And so uh, what we propose is that if we were to do that more openly across the whole industry, we could develop some standards that everyone could follow, everyone could work towards and put data towards so that this whole process could be streamlined and move a lot faster. Um, it's always slower when you have a bunch of actors working on the same problem at the same time in secret. Yeah. It sounds like the it would be a competitive advantage for the people who've been in this space for four, five, you know, ten years that have been working on something to not help with that new standardization, because then new companies would rise up and take their market, like you know, potentially catch up if not uh, exceed them. Yeah, I do think that 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 is true, and it's kind of one of the fundamental challenges with American capitalism or capitalism generally is you you are de incentivized from doing those kinds of things that could lift the whole industry up. Um, so getting around that is challenging. I mean, there certainly would still be benefits for those companies. I mean, every new product they put out, they're going to have to develop these um, processes around. But you're right, it definitely de-incentivizes the more established companies from, from working together. There's a great nonprofit called SENS, SF. They're out in, well, they're in a number of places now, but they work on longevity related things. And when they develop IP in-house and they're licensing out to help promote the industry, kind of what you guys do with like fellowships, uh, not quite, but like similar to what you guys do with fellowships and what have you. But with, when they do that, they also uh, negotiate like an equity stake and like usually some uh, component of like a board share or whatever. So there's some level of control to make sure that the IP goes uh, through um, to the standard that they think is, is right. Uh, I've often felt like I wonder what would it be like if New Harvest had some hand like that. So while the like, because I think New Harvest has been a huge part 
of raising cell agriculture to be something that could even be doable now. I think if you take if you deleted new harvest from existence, I don't think the industry would be where it is today. And so I wonder if if they had a little bit more of an influencing hand, they you know versus like, hey, you know, guys, I really think you should be doing this. It would be, hey, we're on your board where we have equity stake. And we think this would be something that you know raises the tide for you and for everyone else who's coming with it. Um, have you? Uh, I don't know, in house or whatever. What, what do you think about such an idea? So you're saying have like a board or equity stake in some of the startup companies? Yeah. So the uh, you guys, there is non like there's like open source technology that you guys develop for the licensing of the the source. You would just take like a stake or board or something like that, so that or uh, or a part of accepting the license is the sharing of data, like some uh, setup like that. Oh yeah. So for the research that we fund. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And it's it's a complex question because there's a lot of forces at work in the research in this industry right now. But you're right, New Harvest really does push for open research and open licensing. Um, and the reason for that is it's manifold, but I think New Harvest niche is really trying to focus on basic research, the kind of basic fundamental knowledge that is lacking in this field. I mean, it, it exists, obviously, within startup companies, but because of the way that the field emerged, which was primarily funded uh, by VCs for startups for the, for the early stages, um, there's a lot more knowledge in those companies behind closed doors. There's very little in the public domain. And that's backwards from how most industries develop. Typically, you see a lot of funding at the public sector first, and uh, a lot of open knowledge and foundational knowledge in the field, a lot of discourse across scientists to kind of get that foundational understanding that then start companies build upon. That doesn't exist in this field, or at least it didn't, and we're certainly starting to see it now. So I think one reason why that model doesn't really make sense for New Harvest is that that type of basic research doesn't lend itself to a startup company and equity stake and licensing. Like that's not the point of it. The point of that research is to get that foundational knowledge out there that others can build upon. And eventually with enough building upon it, someone will come up with something marketable and commercializable, but that's not the goal of the type of research we're focusing on. And that's not to say we wouldn't ever be interested in focusing on that type of research. I think the model you're talking about is a model that we would be interested in if we had the funding to develop that sort of uh, operational support within New Harvest. Um, technology transfer offices, are an enormous undertaking for universities if you just look at that. So kind of building that type of operational um, capacity within New Harvest is absolutely something I think we would be interested in doing, but isn't where we're at now because we feel like that foundational research is the most neglected piece. Yeah, that makes sense. And it has been a, a big component of what you guys do. I think when I look at a lot of the, the cell ag related technologies, uh, well, like startups and stuff, if you look at the science scientists, you can just like you can see them all come from you guys. Like I once joked with uh, Kate that she probably is like trained like the top scientists in all the companies everywhere. So it's, she can just like walk in anywhere if she wants to go. But um, so I think and like that there's was that the goal. I'll say that yeah. the fellowship program has two main goals. One is the one I talked about that foundational research piece that's really neglected. The other one is training and supporting the emerging leaders of the field because there's kind of two bottlenecks in the field right now. One is open knowledge and foundational understanding of the science and the other one is talent so we kind of try to do both of those and i'm happy to hear that you think we've done well on the talent piece because i yeah, think so well, when it, 
yeah if you're if you're interested in this space if you go on twitter and you follow some of these people uh they're also the ones who are more socially like more open about what they're doing they're doing a lot of different things so it's like you got them when they're young and you train them up in the right way versus uh people who are like if they're like 20 years in the industry and then you're told you're sharing some of these like philosophies you know they've already had like 20 years of bottleneck thinking that kind of gets in the way totally i think openness goes it's such a broad concept. A lot of people just think of it in the terms of open publishing or open licensing, which is also incredibly important. But there's, like you're saying, openness in how we communicate as scientists is also really important. And that is something we try to foster in the students we fund. Because I think it yeah. leads to better discourse in the field. And that, in turn, leads to better um, innovation. Yeah. So one one thing that we're, we're kind of touching on, and that is a general concern, I think many people have had a relationship where like they offer all this help and then you know something happens and they're like hey i could use some help back and then that person's like nowhere to be found right and it kind of feels that way to some extent when i'm hearing about uh people being like intransident with wanting to share you know safety data and stuff granted like it makes it advances them but like for the for you guys for like advance the field it's very hurtful and so um how how do you think about getting around that and i like it, it's it's interesting as a theme like i think people listening in even though they're not until like you know who could be I think they've experienced that we're <laughs> like they're very nice to someone and then they're like uh you know who who are you when you know you need the help back which is like sharing safety data so what's like the strategy to get around that it's a great question if i knew the silver bullet to that i <laughs> yeah i don't think we'd be in this situation we're in now um i mean i will say that there are lots of companies that want to be more open so we mm-hmm. talk to companies and they see the benefits of this they see how for example, New Harvest, but also the wider academic and open science community has helped them out and they want to give back. But there's a lot of, as I said before, like different pressures in this system. And so it's some of them have described it as feeling like a prisoner's dilemma. Like they Mm -hmm. want to be more open, but they don't want to be the first one because it's going to hurt them a lot, like you're saying. And they have pressure from their investors to not do that because some of this like very basic IP is still looked at in the field as being incredibly valuable. So there is a willingness. There's maybe just not clear steps for how to do it. And so that's some of the work New Harvest is actually trying to do right now is figure out what does that look like? So we have the Culture Meat Safety Initiative, which we just wrapped up phase two on now. And that's the work I was alluding to earlier where we spoke with regulators over the last year. And the next phase of this, we've now spoken to industry. That was that first safety publication we did in 2020. Um, We've now spoken to the regulators about what the bottlenecks for them. Next, we want to bring all of these people together and talk about the nitty gritty details of, okay, if we all want to share and we all see the value of this, how do we do it? Like what protections around IP need to be taken into consideration? If you were to join a consortia to have more open sharing, what would you want that to look like? What types of frameworks and guardrails which you want to have in place to ensure you felt comfortable sharing your data. Um, what kind of models do the regulators want to see to ensure the data that's being shared is actually useful to them? Like all of these kind of nitty-gritty pieces are, I don't think anyone knows right now, there are plenty of models in other industries, pharmaceuticals, GMOs are another example where they have done some of this work. And so we're looking to those examples of how these types of consortia or data sharing initiatives have formed and we want to try to work with the stakeholders in this field to develop something that would work for them. And that might look different in different kind of groups. So we may have, it's probably not going to be one giant international consortia, probably unrealistic, but you might get a small group of stakeholders together that are willing to work on an individual problem. And we're going to have to work out the kind of 
frameworks and guardrails that will work for them. So that's the current idea. We're just starting that work now, um, but I'm really excited about where it could lead. Is there a number? It's like a critical mass number that you guys need to meet for that to work just on a theoretical level? Number of, a, a of, number of like group startups like uh, uh, pooling their data for that to work? That's a really great question. I'm not sure. And I, I imagine we could look to some of those other industries I talked about to see what they've found to be useful. But I think any numbers could be good, honestly, even if you just got two to start sharing and then that slowly grew into three, four. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what the number would be. I'll have to kind of think about that a little bit more in our work. Yeah. I wonder if there's a way to make it so the FDA or, or USDA could incentivize people with open sharing. So that if you share your data so they can make better regulation, you get priority uh, approval, like you get like front of the line or like some type of like, you know, thing like that. That way in sharing it, you're not like, like someone new can't just come in and take that data and run run ahead so they could still have the timing element. So they get like, like time and money are like the two things that people worry about. Yeah, well, that's great. I'd love it if FDA would incentivize that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, how would we uh, do stuff like that? Like, how would we like put in a consortium or like get the FDA or USDA to be more involved in helping raise up the industry? Like, well, the FDA and USDA certainly, I think, are interested in this type of work, as are all the regulatory agencies. Um, and they do this type of thing through uh, public-private partnerships, is often what it's called, where these agencies will work with industry and academia and create these partnerships for that um, mutually beneficial collaboration. Um, so it's it's definitely in the realm of possibilities. I've never heard of anything such as a like front of the line pass. I think that'd be pretty yeah, interesting. Yeah, like free. <laughs> you get to go to the front as long as you, know, you, you share the data, you meet the checks, you get to go to the front of the line. You know, yeah. you get first, uh, first uh, dibs of the pie or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> from, from a utilitarian standpoint, when I look at the US and like whenever there's a policy decision or anything like that, uh, when, when it's in the U.S.'s uh, benefit, I more likely see great things going that way. Uh, what what benefit is it to the U.S. to have cellular culture advance here and be on the cutting edge here versus somewhere else, given the fact that we produce an overabundance of food and feed? I think every farmer feeds like everyone in America plus like 150 people outside of America. But that was like 15-year-old data, and most of them have retired. So that number is probably bigger. So like, what is the utilitarian value of the U.S. having these technologies? That's a great, great point and kind of makes me want to discuss other topics, too, because this food insecurity problem is so much more complex than just we are not making enough food. I love that you brought that up. There are other dimensions that CELAG is not fit to solve, which is like the supply, cold supply chains and how do we ensure food isn't wasted along that and mm. consumer education on food waste, all that. That's a different story. Um, I think there are a lot of benefits in the U.S. in terms of food security around I mean, obviously climate change. So looking at needing to come up with solutions that reduce the climate impacts of our food. And this is a powerful tool for that. I'm not saying it's the silver bullet, but I do think it's a powerful tool that should work in conjunction with others. Um, it also could have major benefits in um, biosecurity. So in theory could be a little bit, being a closed system could be a little bit more robust in um, the kind of safety of it. And it will be less influenced by factors like climate change. So like I'll often say that, or I, I stole this from Isha, absolutely, that cultured meat is both a solution to climate change and an option for a climate changed world. So as climate change happens, which you know it's going to, we are seeing a higher rate of um, disease and death among livestock. Um, we're seeing lower production efficiency in a lot of our crops. And so these types of things are going to 
force us to have to be more efficient over time in how we produce food. So you're right. Right now we are producing enough food. Climate impacts of it might be too high. So right there, I think this could have some benefits. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a complex problem for sure. And I don't know that the U.S. needs to be the leader on this. There are a lot of countries that need it a lot more. And I mean, that's part of why Singapore has been such a major um, factor in the forefront of this field is because they don't have enough land to produce enough food for their country. And so they have major initiatives within their country to um, invest in technologies like this that allow them to produce more food. What, 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 there's like so much there I want to comment on. So the, uh, I know, sorry, uh, I'm like going in a million directions in my answer. No, I like it. It's, it, you know, it's like, uh, it's like, a all you can eat buffet. Like you put out the table and I can, I can choose what I want to eat. So it's, true. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's really fun. So, uh, fir first thing is people keep talking about climate change. Like it's, uh, in like, I think the wrong tense. Like it's not, in my opinion, going to happen. It's already happening. I think it's been happening Absolutely. for the last like 30 years. I think that, like, for people listening in, that I think there's a difference when you hear, oh, it's going to happen. It's like, oh, okay, that's a tomorrow problem. When, I think people are already dying from climate change now, like uh, respiratory illnesses are on, on the rise, like even like selfishly for people just living about the, the world, like climate's already changing. You can like see the, that the temperature is like moving north a little bit. So like, I think it's the temperature, the climate for a region in the US is moving north at like six or seven meters a year or something like that. So like it's getting higher and higher. Like it's actually kind of neat. Uh, somewhere in Michigan, it's like the, the perfect place to live. I forget the name of it. Someone did research on this for all the climate models. There's one place in Michigan that's gonna be like the best place, and they expect everyone to immigrate there. So I just want to comment on that. Just you know, forever listening. The you know, tense. It's not gonna happen. It's gonna get worse. And then um, with uh, I think one adva advantage that you alluded to, this biosecurity, is I'm often surprised how we have not had blight just wipe out the Midwest and all these different monoculture uh, crops that we have because it's just you go if anyone's you know living in the city and you've never seen this, like go on Google View and just like. I'm telling you, grab the little dude and throw it anywhere in the Midwest that's not a city, and you just look right, look left. It's corn as far as the eye can take you. And yes. It's not. I think most of it's like a feedstock. It's not actually like corn we eat yes. as well. So Absolutely. it's like you have monoculture. So like if a, a blight or something happened there, uh, it would then hit the cows, which then hit everyone else, and you know, like have like this huge ripple effect. Which if you've seen uh, Interstellar, people you know can get a sense of it there. But I am surprised we've never had a, a blight scenario like this. And so I do like this idea of uh, cultured meat, et cetera, as being this nice safeguard where it could be like 10, 20% of our stuff. We can export that, the, uh, you know, the surplus or we can export those technologies and like, and stuff like that. But um, I often wonder why have we not had blights? But at the same time, I don't want to like question it too much because I know we do, <laughs> Knock on wood. you know, yeah, I we mean, do do genetic, genetic engineering and stuff. Yeah. I don't know if it technically was blight, but the Dust Bowl was to some extent an effect of that monoculture in the Midwest. Right, I'm I'm actually no. not a perfect historian on this, but the, the I would I would say, and people can write in uh, and tell me how I'm wrong, but the uh, the dust bowl was more improper agriculture techniques. Yeah. So the this actually goes to your your point of having a framework where like everyone can be happy versus like people having to like knife each other for the, the best common denominator to make themselves money. Basically, back then people would just like run their fields constantly, and they would deplete them, so they run more fields, more fields, and so they just they had from like Montana to Texas, they just had an open field. And then the wind came in and just picked it up and started like cycling because then there was like less heat regulation and stuff like that. And then FDR came in and uh, uh, had like, you know, they had incentives so that if you leave your field fallow, like one in four years or one in seven years, wherever it is, uh, you get paid for it. So you still make money doing the right regenerative practices to keep your crops doing well. So like, but to answer the original question, in my opinion, uh, I, would, I wouldn't I would say it was a, a blight 
issue. That's more like Irish potato famine in my mind. Mm -hmm. uh, it was more of a terrible, terrible practice. And if you yes. wanted to see an example of like where it goes if you continue doing those practices, the the uh, in the Bible there's this place called the land of milk and honey where like Moses and and co go, and uh, that is present day Iraq. And it used to be like this really really lush thing, and a lot of the agriculture practices depleted the area. Oh wow! Because they didn't know any better. Yeah. Yeah, I I actually I'm I'm not the right type of scientist for this, but I think agricultural practices and regenerative agriculture is incredibly interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think you did a, a project on uh, something involving. Actually, I've made a note of it. Uh, you made you did a, like a school project. Oh, I read everything I could have found on you. Where is it? Uh, oh yes, I did do a school pro project on regenerative agriculture. Yes, yes. I was yes. going to ask you what your thoughts are on uh, soil erosion. Yes, yeah, that project is interesting. I, I mean, just to give a, a slight bit of my life story, I got halfway through my PhD in medicine, tissue engineering for medicine, and suddenly went, "Oh my god, I want to work in food," because climate change and food insecurity. And I'm very concerned about all those problems. And uh, so I took this GIS class in my last year of my PhD. Well, I'm finishing my PhD in biomedical engineering. I took a GIS class just to gain skills in that and did this project in regenerative agriculture. Um, and it was super interesting. So that's about my, my depth of knowledge. And that was now about four years ago, but mm -hmm. um, I do think, so I, I, if I remember correctly, the project looked at these different factors of regenerative agriculture, like no-till, um, and cover cropping and kind of the use of those across the U.S. Um, and how we could improve the use of those. And I think factors like you were just talking about with the Dust Bowl, where we can come in, government can come in and help subsidize the farmers and changing these practices, I think would be really impactful. Um, I'm not a policy expert, but I do think we need more solutions like that. And, and I think that the field of culture, me, like I said, isn't the silver bullet. It's going to have to work with these other solutions. And so I think we need both of those Um to actually have a sustainable future. Yeah. Have you read anything about the three sisters agriculture practice of the Native Americans? Yes, yes, absolutely. I think I I think that's such a great example of really smart farming and something we've moved away from as a society as we've looked to just more industrialization and manufacturing essentially in farming. Yeah, and for people listening in cuz sometimes I like people write in, "Lol, why don't you like what you know, versus just like saying a term uh, three sisters, I think it was a uh, corn, squash, and bean, and they would basically mm -hmm. grow it together so that the like the corn would act like the the structure for the other ones to grow on. But the they would all take something and put something into the soil that the other one could use, and so it was very uh, sustainable. Yeah, the corn provided the structure for the beans to grow up, and mm -hmm. then the squash provided the cover to cool the ground, I believe, to help keep it more moist. And then you're right, nutrient-wise, they all worked really well together. I actually, in my free time, love to do gardening. Um, I often joke that I'm going to quit my job one day and, and open a farm. We'll see if I ever get there. But um, I think, uh, like, uh, putting crops together is such an interesting scientific question of, like, which nutrients do crops need, which nutrients do crops give, how can you grow them together? How can that benefit soil health? It's all really interesting science. Yeah. The beans, I think, have, uh, don't, aren't they the ones that have like ribosomes? So they put out uh, like nitrogen or phosphorus or something in the soil and then um, like recharges what corn takes from it. I don't remember it specifically, but I think there's like, there's like, that's why there's a cycle where people go from like corn to soybean to fallow because the mm -hmm. corn depletes the, the soil of a nutrient that I don't remember off the top nitrogen, of my head. I believe. And, I believe yeah, that legumes yeah. are nitrogen fixers. Yeah. 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 So then, yeah. So then I imagine like the beans as well. Like they're really smart. They just figured all this out on their own. You know, the people who figured out like what was poison and not poisonous, it's like that person was like really smart 
or like it was like a drunk bet <laughs> it's like oh <laughs> I, you know, I bet you to like you know eat this thing or whatever yeah. but um yeah so the past has a lot of uh, potential for the future the uh but do you have any thoughts like honestly and maybe not because it's like four years old do, uh people keep asking me about soil erosion when you think of regenerative uh practices that you know sustain um the u.s, the US has pretty good uh con- they have okay controls on soil erosion but uh do you have any thoughts on how we can do soil erosion better in the u.s or in other places or is that like too far afield that's fine no now now you're moving to like interest fields not what i'm actually an expert in so i yeah. i'm nervous to say anything because you should not trust me as an expert um i yeah. what i can say is i do think soil erosion is incredibly important and interesting um i do think the u.s must have better guardrails in place compared to the dust bowl era um but i think we can certainly be doing better so yeah about, all right. about all i can give in my non-expert <laughs> yeah. <laughs> opinion you describe yourself as similar to the avatar from the last airbender series as being the bridge between academic research is implementation industry as well as policy that come that that's going to regulate it um and so i'm just i'm curious if as you being like the bridge between these these three worlds what is the result of that so like when you do your when you do like a day of work like and you're sitting at the four like these three different intersections what is the result of that work like what comes from it it's a great question. Also, I do not remember describing myself as a character from the Avatar. That feels like a big thing to claim. No, I, I, <laughs> I, I'm describing. Okay, so the just to be clear, thank you for saying this. I am describing you as a character from the Avatar. The quote is the <gasps> the, the quote from you is the bridge between active research, its implementation industry, as well as the policy that's going to regulate it. So it feels like the Avatar, who's between two worlds. Okay, I'm now going to take that as an enormous compliment. I love yes. the Avatar. My car yeah. is named Appa. It's a silver Prius, and I think it's the best name for it. Um, yeah, so I i mean, that's really why I love my job, is being at that interface of all three. Um, I think being in just one, I would probably get bored after a while. Um, but I mean, on a day-to-day, I don't know that it changes my work too much. I mean, it does mean that I, I interact with a lot of different stakeholders in my day-to-day, which is pretty cool. So obviously, direct as director of the fellowship program, I interface with academics quite a lot. Um, but also often interface with industry and regulators like that initiative that I described where we've been talking with them or, um, that can also look like direct collaborations with, um, organizations like the UN Food and Agriculture Organization. We did a collaboration with them over the last couple of years. That was really interesting. Um, so yeah, it just keeps my day-to-day pretty interesting, I, I would say. Um, but what that looks like, like, I think an important component of what that looks like is it becomes really important to be a neutral, central stakeholder. And so that's part of why New Harvest doesn't have IP in any companies. I mean, I don't know if you probably know this, but New Harvest and Isha used to have um, equity and perfect day in every, but gave that up to ensure that we were perfectly neutral. And that's why New Harvest staff don't ever sign NDAs or confidentiality agreements, because if we did have information protected by an NDA from an individual company that could skew how we work with other companies, or it could at least have the appearance of being biased. And so being that bridge between the different stakeholders, it becomes really important that we're very neutral. And so we really strive to be so that we can be trusted by all of these different stakeholders. Yeah. So that you're the person who's kind of like, uh, like setting up, like calling people, listening to what their, their, their stories are, what, what's going on in their thing. Then you kind of like synthesize it together and kind of make a plan with the rest of your team as well, I imagine. Uh, not in a silo. Um, and then you no like, 
then you execute the plan a bit. So like putting together like the, the safety study, like you're probably mm-hmm. part of that. And then the fellowships, like managing the fellowship program, I imagine quite straightforward. You like, you, you help find the people and you like mentor them and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is often um, a convener role, as you were saying, is kind of bringing together these people. And sometimes, like you said, we're talking to them individually and doing that kind of coalescing of information ourselves. But actually, I think it's more powerful when we do that with the different actors. And so convening them together, having mm-hmm. everyone talk and put together that information, which we then collect and typically put out as a peer review publication. So that's why the outputs of the two first two phases of the Cultured Meat Safety Initiative resulted in peer-reviewed publications that kind of collected all that information, synthesized it into a way that's useful to the field and then published it. So that is a lot of the type of work that we do. That makes sense. Yeah. I'm, I'm a fan on uh, conference calls as well, because you don't have to play a game of telephone. You know, Bree yes. can just say, hey, this is my concern. And then it's not Lowell describing Bree's concern to a third-party person. Yes, like, absolutely. It. Yeah. it can be tricky sometimes. Like I will say in the first phase of the Culture and Safety Initiative, where we were talking with the industry and trying to put together that publication, which was the first ever public information on the manufacturing process at these uh, companies, doing that without signing NDAs was a really interesting process. <laughs> um, and so it, making sure that that wasn't a game of telephone where information was lost uh, was an operational challenge, I think. And and I came in, I was hired towards the end of that, so I can take no credit for it at all, but the way that Isha and the team did that was, I think, really incredible. Yeah. I had an advisor in college that said that farmers, like people who work where it's something they can grow and take care of, like he, he has no basis for this other than just like his anecdotal, you know, observation are like the most like, uh, like humble, like they don't get like stressed as much. So like all your plants, all these things, that's what I'm thinking of, of uh, like, you can see what comes from a day's work. So I always ask people when they have a job, like, how do you see the, how do you feel the weight of it? You know, like, what is the outcome of it? Because there's a lot, there's a lot of roles in this world where you, you go on Monday, you leave Friday and it's like, what did I do this week? And there's a lot of people who sit there from like, you know, one to 3 PM or something like that, pretending to be busy because their, their boss makes them feel that way, uh, that they have to. And, uh, and it sucks, you know, like so much of your time being wasted. So like, that's why I ask these questions because you know, people looking in would be like, Oh, what's that job? Like, what's, what the, what's the hard parts and stuff? Um, and they wouldn't know. They would just think it's like them. They don't, you know, maybe nothing comes of it and stuff like that. But what, um, Lisa from sense, the, the, the other nonprofit, which I'm comparing you guys to in my head, the, uh, she said like when she has had to do negotiations, like one of the interesting things that they do is when it does come down to like getting someone to sign something or not sign something, that's when you find out who's like the decision maker in a different group. And while you are at the tail end, I imagine you're working on new projects and stuff like that. What are some like cool or like interesting strategies that you've, you've either implemented, like coming into it? or they've discovered to be working really well when you have diverse stakeholders like this? Like, how do you keep everyone not only on task, but willing to be on task? It's a really great question. And I think we're going to really test this in the next phase of our work where we're bringing together really diverse stakeholders. But um, I think that there is a level of trust making that has to happen um, with anyone that we work with. And so you can't, cold call someone and assume that they understand the value proposition of what we're doing, if they're going to be fully on board and want to cooperate. I think you can never assume that in any work that you're doing. So I think that oftentimes there's some relationship building that has to happen to kind of bring these stakeholders together and ensure that there is trust, not only with New Harvest, but amongst the whole group. And and that takes time. So I think that none of these things can happen overnight. Um, both initi- both stages of the previous initiative we did started off with a 
lot of one-on-one calls um, with these different people to, yes, gain information, but also answer questions they had, gain that trust. And then we brought everyone together into a collaborative workshop. And so that's one strategy that that we've used quite a lot and probably will use in the next phase of this work as well. Um, especially because in the next phase of the work, we're not just bringing together a bunch of industry or a bunch of regulators. We're bringing together industry and regulators and academics and policymakers. Like we might be bringing all of these stakeholders together. So that's going to be an extreme version of it. When when you're looking at industry and the people you're talking with, is it just the new industry upsell ag, or do you look at you know legacy people like dairy farmers, ranchers, and people like that to talk to? It's a really great point. Um, we want to do that work. We haven't done a whole lot of that yet. Um, we have, when we've had the opportunity, tried to do outreach with um, conventional farmers. But I think that that there needs to be a lot more of that type of work in the field. The the cultured meat field likes to talk a lot about how we need to work with farmers and need to have a just transition. We were one of the people that throw those words around a lot and no one knows how to do it best. And so we're actually hoping in the coming years to be able to focus on that more and not, not just do it, but actually look at the best way to do it. Like what are the ways we can collaborate with conventional farmers and what do those engagements look like and what's the most productive way to do it? We have started a little bit of that work with um, indigenous communities, actually, um, primarily in Canada. There was a workshop that we um, collaborated with the University of Fraser Valley um, on last year where we brought together um, academics, industry, and um, indigenous community leaders together for a workshop. And the goal of that wasn't to come out with solutions. We didn't come out with solutions or anything. It was just to open that conversation and start to talk about what it looks like to work together across these communities, what these technologies could mean for indigenous communities and their food security and the meaning of food in their communities, really just a conversation. Um, So that's leading to a publication coming out soon, kind of on the learnings of that. Um, And we're hoping to continue that work on the best ways to engage with indigenous communities in this field um, to ensure just, just transition. So we've actually started that work a little bit in that community hoping to do more in conventional farming communities. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I was a big fan of like more conversations with indigenous groups. What what um, drew you guys to them over like sitting down with like ranchers or someone else? Like what what was about them? That so often uh, it's the opportunities that come our way. Mm. Um, if I'm being purely honest, I mean, we think both are incredibly important. Um, we just had some opportunities through our collaborators at the university. Um, to bring this group of people together. And so it's more that those opportunities kind of arose before the other ones have, especially in the U.S. There is a lot of tension between this field and um, conventional farming communities. So I'd say it's mostly just which opportunities have arisen. Um, We're Mm -hmm. absolutely interested in doing both. I think they're both important. Yeah, I imagine from Indigenous Americans, one of the bigger concerns would be malnourishment. But what were some of the things? I mean, I guess there'd be like a teaser for the larger, you know, paper, but what were some of the things that they were concerned about? Yeah, so I can't speak as an expert. I wasn't, um, Judera, my colleague, was the was the New Harvest representative at that meeting. And then we had a couple of our fellows who were there as well, um, who were the ones working on the publication. So I am not an expert. But from um, what I have heard and my understanding about it, um, one of the big pieces actually revolves, well, which I think is the most interesting, um, revolves around the meaning of food for these communities. So Specifically, um, we've worked a lot with um, communities in the northeast of the U.S. or south, 
sorry, West, West, uh, like the Pacific Northwest community. Okay, where yeah. Salmon is a really important part of their culture. And mm. it's not just that they really like eating salmon. It's actually part of their culture. Salmon have um, a value within their culture. They have a soul. All of those pieces are really important. So when they came to the table in these conversations, one um, of the first questions was, well, your cultured salmon isn't going to have a soul. So what does that mean? Like, how is it salmon? And I, again, I'm paraphrasing from my understanding. Um, this shouldn't be taken for exactly what they said, but I think in Western cultures, we don't think about the meanings of food that way. And so we have to kind of open our mind and think about how different cultures think of food and how this technology could influence that or impact that both in positive and negative ways. We just have to kind of expand our thinking and listen to these other communities. I think the direct way that it would impact them is through like a reduction of eutrophification. So then the waterways wouldn't be as affected. So the salmon would be more populous. Yes, there, there absolutely could be positive impacts. Um, yeah. Some of that ends up revolving around policy decisions too, though, because if, so we have to ensure that this technology does result in less eutrophication and also less fishing so that populations are higher. But then we also need to continue to protect the rights of these communities to be able to fish. So it's kind of an interesting, it's, it's a complex problem. Like everything in this field, a lot of the claims that we make on sustainability or land use are going to involve both science, innovation, and policy to ensure that we get there. Yeah, I, I would think based on what I've read, which is limited, and then what you're saying, that the indigenous Americans wouldn't necessarily care for cell culture in that way for like food um for like their cultural uh benefit I, I imagine that um they'd be like more likely to stick with what they have since it fits like like has like everything with it where like the satellite is kind of like an argument you would have to like really make a compelling argument but i do think that the one benefit of satellite is this ability to like like i don't know i don't know what, like what the technical term for this is but i call it like uh like macronutrient in it like you can just like engineer them to have like so many different things in them so uh one thing that happens after a disaster is even though like people are getting like food they're usually malnourished the whole time because they're not getting like the the uh, variety of food the nutrients and stuff so that even though they're getting fed and they're alive they're still you know struggling because of it yeah that's a really good point there is and that is one of the really exciting things about this field is the ability to engineer foods to be more nutritious or healthier um so yeah no i absolutely agree i think that's pretty exciting yeah what uh what does a just transition look like to you I, I whenever i hear terms like this i don't know what they mean and uh they sound nice and they're you know oh this is a dog but uh if what does a just transition <laughs> he showed up in the background i got excited but uh what what does that look like what's the, yes. what's the future look like in your mind so just transition is such a loaded word and we actually mm -hmm. um have tried to move away from using it a bit at new harvest just because of how loaded it is um and it comes initially from the uh kind of energy field in the just transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy. And translating that into food is kind of a messy process. So in some ways it's good because it's a term people know, in other ways it's complicated. Um, but I think what it means primarily is that we see a transition from, you know, it depends on the impact you're talking about. Well, let's say we're talking about sustainability, which is most typically used with food or with just transition. Um, 
So transitioning away from foods that have a large climate impact to foods that have a, a better climate impact. And I think just transition looks at things such as the workforce that is currently employed by um, conventional agriculture. What does that transition look like for them? How do we ensure that we're not putting people out of work and affecting the livelihood of communities that rely on agriculture? Um, it also looks at things like the indigenous communities, like ensuring that we're looking at the perspectives of all of these different players within the food system um, and that we are seeing um, these new technologies not negatively impact any of them and also not specifically positively impact any. So often with technology it can really positively impact the most affluent in our society and not have those same impacts on the more disadvantaged communities. And so ensuring that that is those benefits are spread across the board. Um, and I think to get there, we have to have these conversations with all these stakeholders. We need transparent innovation that is inclusive of all of these communities. Um, and a lot of this comes back to the tenets of responsible research and innovation, which is why we recently changed all of our job titles to be directors of responsible research and innovation is because that's kind of a framework that gets at a lot of these things rather than just a buzzword like just transition. Yeah, yeah so I see the value of it. The, um... I guess in my mind, the specific, like for instance, like the ranching industry, I think they'll just be like what Japanese Wagyu beef would be. So instead of having like, I've been through Texas and just like herds of cows as far as the eye can see, uh, I think it would just be like Wagyu beef where you could like focus on, um, you know, specialty cows and like treat them really, really well. But um, what are the specifics of like, like that side of it? Like, well, how do you see it impacting the world? It depends on who you talk to. I ascribe to a similar vision as you do. I, I don't see this field completely replacing uh, traditional ways of growing um, food, but I see it as complementing it and also relieving the pressure from our food systems so that, as you said, the animals that we are still raising can be raised in the best way possible and best way in terms of sustainable, ethical, um, and healthy. So, yeah, I look at it as I want this field to help relieve the pressure on our food system so that we can grow food in any manner in the best way possible. Um, so yeah, I agree. I think that conventional cattle ranching will probably continue and will just become a more premium product. Um, there are some interesting ethical implications there if some communities can no longer afford conventional, conventionally raised foods. Um, so it's, it's a complex problem. Yeah, I would imagine that uh, that conventional, like people who rely on beef being a certain price would no longer be able to afford that normally raised cow at that price. Yeah, so we have to ask as a society, are we okay with that? Are we okay with essentially communities with lower income only being able to afford cultured meat? And again, this is assuming a future way off in which cultured meat is at a lower price point than um, farm-raised meat, but... I think these are interesting questions to think about. Yeah, well, it sounds like it'd be more like milk. I don't know if many people are familiar with this, but we, we overproduce milk in the U.S. and most of the time we actually end up dumping most uh, a lot of it. We did a lot uh, under FDR's time as well uh, for different reasons. But uh, today we overproduce milk and um, regulate the price and production of it uh, so that they can have like a certain level of consumption at a price that keeps the milk people in line. I mean, uh, alive. So it seems like it would just be like that for any industry we're talking about. It would just be kind of like that for like average people. It either we we uh, regulate the the pipe 
or we like subsidize in some way, like school lunches, for instance, which was a military benefit. Know that came from military originally. Yeah, and I think this is where that policy piece comes in. And, and I'm certainly not a policy expert, but we we do need to be looking at all of these pieces together. Yeah. What what type of expert? So we've heard a lot about what you know. I keep like going down directions where you don't uh, feel like an expert in. What are the areas that you, you are an expert in in your mind? Yeah, I know. Um, I love that we're doing that. By the way, and that's again part of why I love my job is because I don't just do the thing that I did my PhD in. I I like get to touch all these different pieces, which is really fun. Um, so my expertise specifically is in tissue engineering. So um, that's this idea of taking cells, growing them in a laboratory or manufacturing facility into some sort of tissue. And I, I started my career in medicine. Um, which is honestly where most of the people in this field started, other than this first group of students that New Harvest funded that actually started their PhDs in cellular agriculture. Um, but yeah, so I was culturing in my undergraduate degree, I was doing cartilage. In my graduate degree, I was doing heart muscle. Um, so yeah, so I'm an expert in that, which itself is pretty multifaceted. Um, so there you're kind of a biology expert. You have to understand the cell biology, molecular biology, but you're also an engineer and that you have to be able to build these systems that grow the tissues and allow them to mature and, and all of those pieces. So um, yeah, so tissue engineering specifically. And, and luckily that's the same exact technology that's being used to grow meat. Um, you just care about slightly different things. So in medicine, you care a lot about those tissues being able to function and being able to interface with the human bodies so that when you implant them, they continue to be alive and work within your system. Whereas with food, you care more about taste and texture and cost. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really interesting application of what I was trained in to food. Which which is more difficult? Uh, tissue engineering, meat, uh, fat, or uh, cartilage? Ooh, interesting question. Um, are you talking in terms of food or in terms of medicine? Uh, I'm at medicine, but uh, maybe I, I think food, it would go into a complex, I guess both go down the line of like, it's not like them in isolation. That's hard. It's like when you bring them together. Yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, I think they're all complex in their own ways. I, I do think muscles, especially complex because you have such a dynamic tissue um, and that adds its own challenges. Uh, whereas cartilage is a little bit more static, but also really challenging um, to get into some interesting biology there. The car your cartilage is not well vascularized. And so it's really hard to get a new piece of tissue in there to stay alive. Um, that was a lot of the work I was doing in my undergrad. Um, and fat, I've actually never studied myself, so I can't talk too much about that. But um, I would guess that would be the easiest. Hmm. Well, the I, this leads to a larger question I have. There was another a uh, person at, I think you got your degree at Tufts, or I read wrong, or I have someone else in my head, but I, are you familiar with Michael Levin's work? I think he's at Tufts too. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I uh, I never worked with him directly, but I was absolutely familiar with his work during my PhD. And then um, even now, it's super interesting, the bioelectric work that he's doing. Sweet. Yeah, I, I like, uh, he was on the show, and I, I was, oh, cool. I wrote down this question to ask you, and I was like, I like went off on like a little tangent trying to explain this. <laughs> I was like, well, this makes it easier because you know what I'm talking about. So he talks about the anatomical, anatomical compiler, uh, bioelectric reprogramming. But a lot of the work you're doing, a lot of the work that's being done for um, uh, cell agriculture or tissue engineering, I suppose, uh, it seems like it's more like the micro scale, like we're engineering the cells to do X, Y, and Z. 
and then we scale it up in like you know vats or what have you but uh michael levin's approach is more like uh you know they control like the electric field ion channels and stuff like that so is there a way to apply michael levin's work in cell agriculture great question we actually funded a student who was originally going to do that she has since moved away doing that work you might want to ask her i'm not actually sure why um but i do think it's an incredibly interesting option um because like you said you can kind of direct in theory direct the development of these tissues on more of a macro scale rather than a micro scale and so i think it's a really interesting idea i personally don't know enough about it mm. um, but i definitely think there's an application there yeah well i just always wonder because the it's like when i when you hear about it like this ability to like regrow a limb not from like rebuilding it like on the tissue level just like kind of tricking your arm essentially and giving it the nutrients to grow a limb uh versus i think that's like kind of wild and how like he does it it's like almost like science fiction so i'm always curious, yeah like, it is really can... wild um yeah i mean i think there's still a lot to be learned about it um last i checked in we we had transferred that to a human limb um but oh, it's definitely really now. interesting science he has a startup called morphoceuticals because he loves the <laughs> i assume he just likes morpho space so much that's great that's a great name. yeah yeah, I think it starts on mice, and it's been going on for a little bit. But uh, mm -hmm. I think uh, the the debate of whether or not like BCI technology or his technology in terms of regrowing a limb and functionality, I'm I'm always curious. I, I lean towards like more his stuff, even though like BCI is more easier to just like integrate a chip into your brain and like attach something like have it controlled, or even like a muscle mm -hmm. implant stuff like that. But this isn't your avenue, so I won't uh, ask you de like a detailed <laughs> question. But it is super uh, interesting. Yeah, is there a uh, are there avenues in cell agriculture that you think, well, in this case, this is one that was being funded, but then it, you know, didn't continue. Are there other like outlier paths like this to explore that haven't been explored that you think should be explored? I think absolutely. I think that in order to get the field, and this is a very general answer, but if we're going to get the field to where we want to at the cost and scale of production that we need, we're going to have to come out with outlier solutions that don't exist yet because i think that's part of the challenge the field is going through right now is we are basing so much of the technology off of what we're pulling from medicine um, and kind of what traditionally worked for the pharmaceutical industry or the medical tissue engineering industry and the constraints are just so different we kind of need to break out of that thinking and think outside the box that being said i don't know what those are um i don't know what the answer is but i do think we're going to need some out of the box thinking to, to get where we want to go yeah. Is it the, do you, if you're having out of the box thinking, is there an aspect of new harvest work that you think is going to get that out of box thinking? Is it like funding the fellowship people to have the base of knowledge to start innovating in it? Like how do you see us getting to that point? Yeah, I think so. And I, that is one of the tenets of the fellowship is to try to fund these out of the box ideas. Um, kind of the, the scientific investigations that no one else is going to want to fund because they're too risky. That has always mm -hmm. been a tenet of the new harvest fellowship. Um, and we've had a few of those. Like I said, the, the start of the bioelectric one. Um, we have another student, uh, Freya, at the University of Munich, who's doing a really interesting study um, on self-organization of cells. So, you know, this idea that in order to get a marbled steak, you have to, it's really hard to get the muscle mm -hmm. and the fat to all localized into that perfect marbling. Uh, so she's looking at some like really cutting edge technology that allows the cells or allows you to program the cells to self-organize into a structure. Really early stage research, really kind of like a 
cutting edge risky endeavor. And, and so that's something we funded because if that could work, could be incredibly influential for the field. Yeah, it sounds interesting. And she has a cool name. Uh, I like uh, old Norse names. Uh, so I'll have to like, you know, put that in the show notes for other people to check out. But are there yeah, any absolutely. books? Are there any books or resources that you recommend people check out? It doesn't have to be related to this field. It could just be things that you've been enjoying reading that you think I, for one, would enjoy reading because I need more books, clearly. Good question. Um, what have I been reading lately? Well, I mean, there's lots of great books in this field, um, and I probably don't need to name those. Those are probably already pretty obvious. I have been reading a book called um, Patent Politics lately, which has been very interesting, kind of getting back to that discussion we had at the beginning of like, IP and um, how that works. And it goes into how the US versus Europe has differed in their approach to patenting life forms, kind of as science has evolved into this ability to engineer life. How do you patent that? That's been really interesting. Um, and again, part of my own personal journey and trying to better understand uh, the kind of innovation side and open research and responsible research and innovation and patents work and how that works with all those fields. So um, it's been a really interesting book. Pretty dense. It's kind of academically written, but uh, really interesting, I think, to look at the politics between the U.S. and Europe. What is the difference between the way the U.S. does it and, the, and Europe does it? Well, I'm only halfway through the book, but <laughs> I can tell you um, so far that um, the U.S. has, I mean, as I think most people know, taking a much more open approach to uh, kind of bioengineering. And so, um, yeah, much more open approach in the U.S. and a much more, uh, what's the best word for it, kind of, I would say more thoughtful approach in Europe. I think some people might use a different adjective for that. But um, a big underlying piece of the two actually has been the introduction of a morality question in Europe. So when they look at the patenting of technologies in Europe, they're actually looking at the moral questions underlying it. And they use um, a framework, I can't remember what it's called now, I think it's a Latin term, but essentially translates to like public, I can't think of what it is now, but like how is this going to impact the public. Mm. Whereas in the US, they completely rule out any question of morality in patenting. And they look at it as a completely impartial, all we're going to do is check XYZ. Is it novel? Does it fall under the requirements for a patent? Okay, you can have a patent and let that kind of moral question or the regulation of technology be done in general by the economy. So it's just kind of two different ways of doing it. It's quite interesting. That is interesting. Is there, uh, do you have a favorite flavor, the U.S. or Europe? <laughs> I'm going to out myself here. I would, I tend to subscribe more to the European approach, honestly. Um, not, it's not purely black and white, but I do think we should take the morality question into consideration in innovation because innovation is not impartial. I think a lot of people like to look at innovation as being completely independent of society and we should just innovate and innovation is always good. I think innovation is embedded in everything we do and is highly influenced by society and influences society. And so I think we have to look at that morality question when we're innovating, um, which actually another book I recently read was The Ethics of Innovation. And that one was interesting too, um, in kind of talking about this question of is innovation always good? Um, so yeah, so I subscribe more to the European approach on that, but not in everything. I mean, I think 
I think both have some benefits. Yeah. I'm trying to think which one I would go for. At this, I think my big concern with the European approach is uh, like morals are somewhat relative. I'm not even somewhat, they're yeah. like extremely relative. Like they're very cultural. Yeah. If you if you take someone from Europe, a random person, you take someone from like Southeast Asia or China and you sat them in a room and said, hey, what's moral? I think they'd all have different a- answers to that. A really, really good point. Yeah. So then how would you account for that? How does uh, Europe account for that? I know. I think I have to finish the book. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. <laughs> that's, that's, the last, that's the last third, I think, probably. Yes, yes, probably. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I don't know. Morals are weird. Uh, Western Civ and whatnot. So, um, yeah. uh, one last uh, citation from you, actually. And then I'm gonna, we're going to go to like a new thing that I've never done before, which is a, a thing from Reddit. But um, oftentimes, when I grab my oat milk out of the fridge, I find myself <laughs> thinking fondly about when I'll be able to grab true milk that doesn't make me feel bad. And so I just want to ask for people who love milk, uh, oat milk, why don't you think oat milk is real milk? True milk? <laughs> Good question. Oh, man, you have to be careful of everything you let yourself be quoted on. Um, well, I do love oat milk. And I do think it should be called milk. In some instances, it doesn't quite have the taste or functionality of cow's milk, which would have been a better phrasing to use rather than real milk. Cow's milk would have been the better phrasing. Um, and I am quite excited for when we can have cow's milk that is made using precision fermentation. Mm. Okay, that's good to know. At the same time, it's not, uh, is it cow's milk if it doesn't come from a cow? I guess it comes from a cow, like laterally. So it's kind of not, great even that's not, I mean, that's not, yeah, it's kind of like a, like almost like a thesis of shit problem because you replaced yes. all, but, but you, you took everything but like one, four, uh, one, one like board or something and then like that's the ship now. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. No, I think that's a great question. And it, I mean, I'm asked all the time, are these products going to be vegan or are they going to be halal or kosher? And I can't answer any of the religious ones. There's religious scholars working on those. But from the vegan perspective, I think it comes down to why are you vegan? Because it it is from a biology perspective, molecular biology perspective, cow's milk. Like It was the genetic material of cow's milk. It has the same structure and function as cow's milk but it didn't come from a cow. So I think it comes back to that morality question of if veganism or vegetarianism is going to become a lot more nuanced because you're going to have options on the market that don't fit into those categories perfectly. And so every single person is going to have to ask themselves individually of, well, why was I vegan? Does this fit those morals and make their own choices? Hmm. That's interesting. But all right. So uh, I think I sent it in the chat. So you, if you want to like pull it up, so we're so for people listening in, I read these things where basically there's like a subreddit. If it's not in the chat, I can send it to you again. But um, where people basically say like, "Hey, something happened," and they ask people to like weigh in: Are they jerks or are they not jerks? It's called "Am I the asshole?" But I, I I don't know if like swearing matters to you at all, uh, Bree. So I'm like avoiding that word. And so um, so like I I can read this, or we can take turns reading this, and then I just wanted to hear what your thoughts are. I haven't read it fully. I just know it involves meat, and I thought it would be funny. That's <laughs> like my criterion for this. So, uh, do do you uh, do you have it before you? And I'll I'll throw this no, up on the screen. No, I don't else. see it yet. Um, and okay. I was trying to find it. So you're gonna have to tell me again. We're gonna Here. read it, and then what are we going to do? I just want to hear your thoughts on it. We'll talk about it. Okay. Oh, there we go. Found it. There you go. Okay. So, uh, man, I suck reading out loud. I, I wish we would take turns. But anyway, so the title is "Am I the asshole for ordering a giant steak against my mother-in-law's will, actually eating it, and refusing to cover the entire bill?" Um, so. I am 27, 
have been together with my husband Nate for over ten years, married with for four. I don't have the best relationship with my mother-in-law as she seems to police what I eat. That's kind of mean in the first place, but uh, everyone in my family has. And whatever, if you have a thought, just like say it as you're going, like as we're reading this together. Um, and anyone in the comment section, tell me what you think about this. It's just like I do this a lot with my friends, so I thought like why not? Why not do it to to Bree? So uh, everyone, my yes, everyone in my family has a fast metabolism. I have been working with horses, so due to this burn, due to this a. A lot of calories taken about two to three thousand a day. Usually have rather large meals to get the energy back, and I see uh, still remain skinny. So we got horses right there. Legacy, legacy stuff going on. Uh, mm -hmm. New the event. I think like you know, sell agriculture seems to like. I think that's what they're gonna do for beef and all these other things. Like what horse? We're having horses. Like they just constrict down and become specialty items. But all right. So anyways, um, yeah. So new now to the event. My in-laws invited me and ate for dinner last Friday. I was very busy back then and haven't eaten since about six seven a.m. And also didn't have a chance to have a snack before heading to the restaurant, so I was starving. I usually have something to eat before seeing my mother-in-law to avoid her comments. Due to this, I have ordered a large steak at the restaurant, which is meant for two people. Wow, that's cool. It also come that the wow that cool is not the person. It also came with prawns, bacon, and two sides. Man, I love this woman. Like I want to eat that. Please note <laughs> it was not the most expensive item on the menu, as some of what my in-laws had some of the higher price dishes. We were all splitting the bill. Anyway, my mother-in-law started making comments how I shouldn't be ordering that. I can't eat since even her husband wouldn't be able to finish the dish, let alone someone my size. I smiled and said, I haven't eaten since this early this morning. I'm starving. I didn't finish the di uh, steak. I don't. If I don't finish the steak, I'll you know have it for leftovers. I have easily finished the steak and was waiting for dessert when my mother-in-law flipped. She said, I am attention-seeking and was putting on a show. I also said, I have made my father-in-law and brother-in-law feel uneasy and that a woman shouldn't eat that much. Wow, there's so many things here for us to unpack. Goodness, uh, I didn't, yes. I didn't think we were going to get into sexism, but uh, so it is unhealthy and something <laughs> is wrong with me. We're everything in this podcast. Yeah, yeah, we're getting it all. So she has she has then demanded me and Nate to cover the entire bill as she was, wasn't planning on such a big expenditure. So we we're absolutely not covering the entire bill since it wasn't meant to be split equally. Reminded her the dishes ordered. They were significantly more expensive compared to my steak, including her starter. As a result, I was called an asshole who ruined a family dinner. Nate is on my wow. side, but most of my, most of my in-laws are making very <laughs> passive-aggressive posts on social media about it and keep sending me different articles on what might cause excessive eating. So what are your thoughts? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> there is a lot there. Yes. Uh, the first part reminds me a lot of my husband, who uh, will eat a lot. It's ridiculous mm -hmm. and still remain, remain skinny. So, I mean, we've definitely dealt with this problem, but typically it's like his is the most expensive meal on the bill. So if it's not, I don't see what the problem is. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I, I, it seems like the the core issue seems to be like the mother in law has a view on like how women should look and eat, and like and is like imposing it on the the daughter in law. Yeah, the core issue seems to be the relationship between this woman and her mother in law. So <laughs> seems like that's that's the core issue to be addressed here. Uh, yeah, I'm quite lucky, and I am incredibly close to my mother in law. Um, so I can't I can't give advice on that. Yeah. Other so you wouldn't. Than, um, so, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was gonna say. Other than I think their strategy of typically trying to eat snacks before heading to to meals with their mother-in-law seems like a good strategy. But you know, you can't be perfect. Yeah. The uh, or they could I guess pay differently. I, it, it seems like the the strategy you would suggest is if the person in this post continue doing like like uh like they know it's gonna happen. They're like an old. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. And so they should just, you know, kind of account for it and move on with their day versus letting this person. But, but my, I guess my problem with that is that, um, like the mom is just like, you know, clearly attacking her like significantly over the years about how she eats and how, you know what she does. And it seems like 
it's kind of obnoxious, I guess. Like if someone was like, if I just like follow you around, like why are you eating that? At a certain point, I feel like he bought me. But like the mother law gets a pass because like you know you're married to them, you have to be nice. Yeah, I mean, I do think the best option would be to try to have a conversation with your mother-in-law, try to get at the root of whatever this issue is. I don't know the backstory though, and whether that's possible. Yeah. But that does seem we may need some group therapy with uh, <laughs> the the family here. Yeah. Well, she she has the horses for equine therapy, so that is, uh, I think, an option here. I think you have to That's have true. specially trained. You can have specially trained horses, though. Is this so? I have heard that. Uh, so I'm I'm not dating. I'm married, but I know people who are out there who are dating and who are women, and they say they they feel they do feel normally judged when they're eating. And granted, I'm talking to someone who's married as well, so I don't know. Like this, like channel your, so, your inner person. <laughs> I'm yeah. not only married, but uh, I've the last time I dated, I was 15. Uh, my husband and I were high school sweethearts. So uh, I... That's so dorky. I love it. No, but I know. So dorky. Uh, just kept working, you know? And here we are, 30 and still together. Um, yeah, so I really can't give advice on the dating piece. But I do think, I mean, to, to get to gender stereotypes, I mean, they certainly exist. And even within, like, generations, I think there's a lot of stereotypes there that can be really challenging. And... Yeah, I think you always have to think about, is it worth putting up a fight? And if it was your mother-in-law, probably would be worth trying to have that conversation, is my guess. Yeah, I like my mother-in-law to have benign neglect when it when it comes to me. That's my goal. Uh, like, it, it, love me or hate me, if I can just, like, I just seek for benign neglect. Like, uh, I'm just like a plant. I'm happy being a plant. I'll just give oxygen for my environment and uh, treat their, their daughter nice and go about my day. Um, so do you, do you think the lady in this equation... The daughter-in-law is the jerk or is it the the mom oh i would say it's the mom <laughs> it's I mean, mom. you always have to realize history is written by by a, a biased perspective but from this perspective sure seems like it yeah yeah i think i i would, I would agree uh i don't know i, I think it, to the level that like the mom's just like going about it like i don't know it's kind of ex ex excessive i feel like i mean honestly like Eating that much food in one sitting, I, I would like applaud her. I'd be like, "Good for you! This is amazing." And if you're still thin, that, that yes. sounds amazing. Even I if think you're not most thin, people wish for like... that. There could be some jealousy involved. Yeah, that could be it. I think we'd all wish oh. we could eat that much and still be thin. Yeah, is there? Uh, for, I don't know if this is like too personal, but uh, do, are there any tips for you know having a mother-in-law that you? I mean, you have a good relationship, so like anyone out there, there's a lot of these about evil mother-in-laws essentially. <laughs> <laughs> so like is there any like tips to like uh having an, i guess like getting early at 15 and like just never going yeah. away i think they've that like kind of, like 15 15 years of time i think kind of like mulls people down a little bit yeah i think there's two factors my relationship with my mother-in-law um one was the the being so young and hilariously when we were in high school and dating i'd go over to his house and he wanted to go upstairs and watch tv and didn't want to hang out with his family and i insisted on hanging out with his family. So I think that's part of how I became so close to them. Um, and she also is uh, quite young. The age difference between her and her son is a lot smaller than typical. And so I think there's less of a generational gap, which is really nice too. So mm. shout out to Heather. You're great. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like she's great. So she's like a millennial too then. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, weird that millennials I think, I think can that be helps in, a like, lot to be able to 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 relate to to yeah. mother-in-law. So, yeah, I was recently talking to a fifteen-year-old, and they were using all these different words. And then I realized they were using our words from when we were kids, and they were like <laughs> passing it off. They like they took the word and they tweaked it just a little bit, and I was like, "That's our word." And they were just they, coming um, around. Yeah, well, they're like, "Did you know 
about uh like uh Eminem or something like just kept asking me all these questions like oh this is new thing that's out like the Eminem's new song it's like uh I was like that's been around for like 20 years like what are you talking I about I did so so my husband's youngest sister is uh a sophomore in college she's a lot younger than us and so I always feel really old when I talk to her typically she's saying things and I'm just like I don't know what you're talking about but she was saying that uh the, the music that they're playing at parties now is like the music from our era she said like the go-to crazy dance song at the frats at her university right now is Mr. Brightside I couldn't believe that <laughs> what which one is Mr. Brightside um, is there like uh, a lyric you remember it? I don't remember. I don't remember names of things. I have like Taylor Swift in my head. My wife will not stop listening to Taylor Swift. So if you told me like, oh, it's this song of this era, I'd be like, I could probably know that. But I do not know the song you're mentioning. I think. Well, it's by the Killers, Mr. Brightside with Killers. Here. No. If you're, there was you're gonna like, have to look it up. I couldn't. I could. Yeah. I won't sing it for you. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> that, that that, that's what I, that's what I was seeking for, and I would put that in the clip, and people were like, this is this is gonna be a wild episode. Um. All right, so then we've established this person as the, the jerk. You know how to have a good relationship, make an effort with people, which is nice. Um, and I would ask you advice on, you know, finding love and stuff, but uh, apparently the advice is, uh, I, I don't know, imagine you guys met in biology class and you were like, were like Edward, and he, you know, he was Edward and you were like, uh, you know, uh, the Kirsten Stewart character, and he just didn't sparkle when he came out of the sun. I don't know, that's how, that's how I imagine you guys met. Pretty much. It was AP psychology, but yeah, pretty close. That's pretty close. It's uh, it's still science. Psychology is still science, but yeah. Um, all right then. Well, I just want to uh, thank you for coming on the show. We just tried something new there, so I don't know. Everyone listening, you can make fun of me, but uh, Bree, thanks for, so much for coming today, talking about cellular culture, the transition that's going on, new harvest, and the value they bring, and helping us decide uh, who's the asshole in this thing. <laughs> happy, happy to try any experiment with you. This was fun.